Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Michelle May, Dr. Michelle May. She is an associate professor at Arizona State University, and she focuses on mindful eating. We're going to find out what the hell that means. I'd like to be mindfully eating probably not the crap that I'm not mindfully eating right now. She is the founder and CEO of an organization called Am I Hungry and the author of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. It's a book series. And I mean, outside of the medical stuff, she's a Gen Xer at heart. And, you know, it's not fun to make fun of things that don't age well. But, you know, starving children in Africa in the 80s and life before low fat when we were thinner <laughs> as a society. Empathy in medicine, checking in with yourself. Things not to say to cancer patients like, oh, just go drink kale. As well as please don't use diabetes drugs for weight loss if you're not type 2. Enjoy the show. Michelle May, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So glad to be here, Matthew. So as typical for any guest I have who has doctor preceding their first name, I always have to ask, are you the kind of doctor when someone says, is there a doctor in the house you can help? That's right. That's the kind of doctor I am. So have you ever heard, is there a doctor in the house and responded? Oh, unfortunately, many times that's happened. Uh, it happens all the time. I mean, I think people people have heard it before, on including airplanes and other places. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to be able to help. However, I have been out of my medical practice for a number of years, so I usually will defer to anybody who's been practicing more recently than I have. Yeah, Plan B, doctor on the airplane. I love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Plan B. So I was reading through all of your stuff, and and one little phrase <laughs> hit me in the gut, like a Gen Xer normally would, something like, uh, "Growing up, you know, our our parents made us clear the plate because <laughs> the starving children in Africa." <laughs> it just brought back mm -hmm. so many memories of like the food guilt that our parents brought upon us. Correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of us were raised by parents who were raised by parents who grew up when food was scarce. And a lot of the messages that we learned really don't apply to most people anymore, yet we carry them into adulthood. We clean our plate in order to earn dessert. We uh, eat everything we're given. We don't want to waste food. We get the, you know, the clean plate blue ribbon. So I think it's one of the many messages that we've internalized that we may not even recognize is, is not productive. Yeah, my, my father used to kind of counteract it a little bit. My mom, my mom and my grandma were like, clean your plate. And my dad was like, well, eat all you want, but eat all you take. So, of course, you know, when you're 12, you take as much food as you think you should, and you never finish it. So then you're guilted into finishing it. That's right. That's right. Well, and that's the beautiful thing about mindful eating is that it really becomes an inside-out process of deciding 
we start to recognize when those voices from our past arise. And then we say, well, wait a minute, how hungry am I? How much food do I need? If I eat food I don't need, I am wasting it. So I'm going to put it in the refrigerator or throw it away. I'll take less next time. So I want to take a trip down memory lane because, you know, we we, we both, my, I was diagnosed in the 90s. You were out of the curve starting this in 1999. In terms of how far we've come and yet how crappy things have gotten in terms of food, I mean, we remember when food was food. I mean, like Europe has food. America used to have food and everything got all, you know, janky and kajammered, I mean, words up in agribusiness and now food is in food. And how does that play into the fact that, you know, life before low fat, we were thinner? Right. I mean, it's it's a very good example of how this focus on all the bad foods we're eating isn't really improving people in terms of their well-being. So my focus now is not so much on what people are eating, but why they're eating in the first place. Because the food is constantly changing, the rules are constantly changing, the the science is even constantly changing. So I think when people are struggling to manage their eating in a sustainable way, I want to go back to, well, then why are you eating? Are you eating because your body needs fuel? Are you eating because it's a habit, you're bored? Or is there some other emotional trigger like stress being one of the most common, which is interesting that both boredom and stress, stress being having too much to do and boredom not enough to do, we've sort of learned that food solves all these problems. I love to look back at, so my daughter is, is almost 13 and she asked me point blank a couple of weeks ago, daddy, how come whenever someone's sad on television, they eat ice cream? <laughs> like, it's just so telling, isn't it? This is baked into our psyche and our culture. Isn't that funny that she even realized that? Because a lot of times people don't even recognize these messages that we're picking up from advertising and and uh, our television programs. Well, yeah. I mean, I just remember like what we do for Klondike Bar in the 80s. And that was it. It wasn't <laughs> like you must eat this and you must eat that. Yes, I know. Well, and my one of my favorite examples of this is sinfully delicious. Oh God! You know, it's just such a, a message, right? That if it's if it's delicious, then it must be bad. And and I think that again, that's kind of a counterproductive message because a lot of people eat more when they feel guilty. They eat more when they feel bad about themselves, and ultimately, it doesn't really change behavior. Well, remember, Virginia Slims were the healthiest cigarette for women, too. <laughs> right. Let's not even go there. Well, I, actually, let's go there for a moment. Look how we can learn about cigarette smoking and look how we can learn that it was a message that really is uh, not helping us. It's, it's what needs to happen now with food, as far as I'm concerned. So in terms of like the uh, the disease of obesity or the the addiction to sugar. I mean, there's real data, there's real science around that. What have you learned in writing, what gets your books, obviously, eat what you love, love what you eat. It's a whole series, we'll talk about that. What have you learned in terms of countering addiction to sugar, to foods versus the emotional eating? There's so many, I mean, in, in social determinants of health is like the new jargon now, at least in my world in healthcare. But that's attributable to this exact world of yours as well. 
Right. And so I'm going to push against the statement that there's scientific evidence about addiction to food or food addiction. I think it is actually more controversial than that. So, for example, we know that certain addictions are more of a process addiction. It's not food or sugar itself, because in, in truth, sugar lights up our pleasure pathways the same way that a beautiful sunrise does or a, or gorgeous music or sex or other things that can be very healthy parts of our lives. So sugar isn't in and of itself what is the problem. When you look at addiction studies, they they never, they virtually never look at whether people have diet in, dieted in the past. And so there's a body of literature that most clinicians are unfamiliar with about restrained eating that shows that when you restrict somebody's food, you tell them foods are bad, you can't eat it, that's not allowed, you have to weigh, measure, count, and earn your food that it actually ends up putting it up on a pedestal, which people can, for a a short period of time, resist. But over time, they will actually begin to crave those foods more. There are both psychological and physiological reasons why this happens. And so when people finally give in and eat the food that they weren't supposed to eat, They feel out of control. They eat more than they intended to. They feel guilty about it, which adds to more eating because they're going to go back on their diet tomorrow or January 2nd. And so it ends up actually being an important part of the process that people who feel restrained or restricted from eating foods they love end up eating more of those foods, which only only <laughs> proves to them that they must be addicted to those foods. But it's actually partly because of the restraint and the restriction that they that they feel out of control. I love that you mentioned January 2nd. We're taping this in like late December before Christmas. This whole human-made construct of a New Year's resolution, like you're inventing a start date for yourself, mm-hmm. that's all BS, right? It's totally BS because... If we're looking at health and we're looking at well-being, we're not looking at a short-term pledge to perfection here. We're looking for sustainable changes, things that we can do long-term. Those typically tend to be small steps, which, of course, is not dramatic, doesn't get headlines, doesn't, doesn't make People magazine, right? We're looking for small, sustainable steps that people can learn from as they go and Uh, improve upon as they make mistakes. That's not what New Year's resolutions are all about. It's here. Do this for as long as you can. What would you think a small step is? I mean, it's a very broad question, but in terms of just the average person who is doing their best, who's conscious already of this, what is a small step? Well, it is, it is very individual. You're, you know, that's a, that's an important piece of this is because I, I cannot give someone advice about what the right small step is for them. But some examples of small steps that people can take, one in my area that I really love is to uh, pause. Whenever you notice that you feel like eating, pause and check in. Ask yourself, am I actually physically hungry? This is the equivalent of checking your fuel gauge before you get off the freeway every time you see a gas station sign, right? So pausing to check in with yourself and noticing whether you need fuel gives you a lot of information. 
it tells you, okay, my body physiologically needs food so I can move on to the next question, which is how much food do I need? And the next question after that, what kind of food do I need? If you're not hungry, then don't waste your time thinking about what kind of food to eat. You need to stop and say, okay, well, then why do I feel like eating? Is this boredom? Is it stress? Is it loneliness? Is it lunch o'clock? What's actually happening in this moment? So it's a relatively small step, but it's a way of beginning to tune inward to noticing why you're wanting to eat in the first place, which can give you a lot of information about your relationship with food. Right. Then there's the, you're eating with your eyes, mm. right? You're not really hungry. You're eating with your eyes. Mm-hmm. Yes. How does that work? Well, that's a the feast for the eyes, so to speak. So again, we as as human beings, actually mammals, most mammals are food suggestible. When we see food, we want food. It looks good. It's delicious. We associate it with pleasure. We associate it with approval for if it's something that grandma made, for example. So there's a lot of reasons that we do this. It's interesting because a lot of the people that I work with, that I coach or work with on these issues, they tend to maybe be a bit deprived of pleasure in other areas of their lives. It could be that they're working long hours or too much. It could be that they are not in a satisfying relationship. It could be that maybe they're not feeling well for other reasons. And so food then becomes a really easy way to add a dose of pleasure throughout their day. And so seeing food that looks delicious, instead of it simply being, oh, that looks delicious, it becomes, oh, if I eat that, I will feel better. And really a lot of the work around mindful eating is trying to help people recognize those subconscious, uh, these thoughts that they're having that most of the time they're not aware of. Yeah, then there's also, so I come, I was raised around Italians, I'm Jewish, I know a lot of folks that are of Indian descent, and we're all like, our culture is like, you know, food, guilt, and shame. Mm. So I've I've been at Christmas dinners at my friend's houses where like my friend doesn't want to eat all the the junk that's fabulous sitting there, and they get shamed by the grandma, you should be eating this food, what's wrong with you? Like, (laughs) where you can't escape it. You can't escape it. It's it's part of relationships to to try to push food or to try to withhold food. I mean, unfortunately, food has become more than food in our culture. But as you become more in charge instead of trying to control your food, then you can say, oh, yeah, grandma, that looks amazing. I love your fill in the blank. I am absolutely stuffed. Can you teach me how to make it the next time I'm over? Or can you give me the recipe? Or can I pack up some for tomorrow? So it's not it's not so much about, oh, I can't refuse this because grandma insists. It's about being more creative about how you meet your own needs while not offending your, your dear grandmother. That's some real good Dale Carnegie stuff to pull in your family. <laughs> <laughs> Do not offend your your grandmother. <laughs> exactly. What is it? Get what you want. No, get what you want on their terms or, or give them what they want on your terms. That's exactly what this is. Well, I'll tell you, my, my favorite saying is your your family knows how to push your buttons because they're the ones who installed them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is way that it's funny because it's true. It is true. <laughs> it's too true. 
So let's take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about your book. And I have, I, have, I mean, there's so many questions to ask, and this could go down 40 different podcasts. But we'll take a break, and we'll be right back from the makers of Sweet and Low. Not really. <laughs> Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Question of the millennium, <laughs> going back to allopathic medicine, of course is does primary care ever ask you what you're eating? Mm. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So when I was in medical school, it wasn't a big conversation. There wasn't a lot of training in nutrition. And what, that, what happened as a result of that is physicians are left on their own to acquire their own nutrition knowledge. And what many of us do then is we absorb the same information that our patients or culture is being given. So specifically in my case, I, uh, I, am a, I call myself a recovered yo-yo dieter. I dieted for many, many years. I had disordered eating, as I recognize now. And I passed that on to many of my patients by suggesting and I, I won't name names, but, you know, suggesting they do this diet du jour, this plan that everybody was doing. Because, as many of my clinician friends, colleagues say, it's a good diet. The problem is it's still a diet. And it doesn't really help people learn about their bodies, how food affects them, how they feel when they eat certain things. And it puts them in a restrictive mindset, which is not sustainable and ultimately doesn't lead to sustainable behavior change. So I think we're missing, we're really missing the boat on that. I, I hope it's improving, but I think it's slow. Yeah. I, I, I've been working in healthcare since I was diagnosed in the nineties and I, I'm always have like my, my radar on as to what is the demeanor 
of that primary care or that specialist? And is it fair to even expect them to have to know these things? Like you said, it's not taught. It's not FDA approved. Like it's, it's, there's like, um, it's all foggy and it's something that should be discussed. Is there any way, or have you seen trends where there is a new, maybe a, a version of primary care that is aware of this and does make recommendations or works with nutritionists in the area, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's an important approach. Is we are we should not be the end all be all. We have a lot of uh, better trained colleagues that we could be referring to and working collaboratively with if we don't have that knowledge ourselves. So I do think that you know if a if a clinician doesn't have the training, referring to a registered dietitian is a much smarter move. Now there are there are certainly clinicians now who have integrative training or you know more specific nutrition education, but but I'm going to suggest though that a lot of what is promulgated out there is more of the eat this not that don't eat this this is bad kind of thing and I I don't think that that leads to sustainable changes. What we want to do is have people making choices for themselves based on feeling good, not being good. And that motivation to feel good is very powerful once we can help people start to approach things from that perspective. So the the three things on your site that define what you stand for, mindful eating, joyful movement, and intentional self-care. So the series is Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat, and obviously Born of Your Own Condition, as a recovering yo-yo dieter, uh-huh. you know, I'm not yet recovering, so I'm learning from you as we go. <laughs> but you know, why a book? Yeah. Well, you know, I I was practicing medicine. I was chronically going on and off my diet, and I soon recognized that many of my patients were doing exactly the same thing, which was kind of a relief because for a long time I thought there was something wrong with me. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, if we're all doing it and many of us highly educated, successful in other areas, maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe what we're trying to do here just doesn't work for people long term, work short term, no doubt, but long term is really the goal. Then I also had a couple of young children of my own. And as I observed them, you know, they were eating with complete joy. And when they weren't hungry, they weren't interested at all. I mean, despite all my attempts to bribe or cajole them, they just weren't interested in eating past the point of, of their own level of satiety. And that was a big aha for me that I had spent years of my life yo-yo dieting, weighing, measuring, counting, and logging food. That was before we had apps. And yet here were my children who had this instinctive, natural, joyful relationship with food and the ability to stop when they'd had enough, whereas I had a very difficult time reading my stopping points. So that really led me away from the whole diet model as a solution toward really helping myself first and now my clients, really helping them establish a, a, an instinctive, mindful relationship with food again. All right, so Mythbuster question. Is it true that your uh, your brain doesn't know you're full until like you've eaten too much? Well, it kind of. So what 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 really happens is that there is a delay between the sense of satiety and fullness. 
So if you eat until you feel full, oftentimes you're going to feel overly full. If you can remember that you're going to feel more full in about 20 minutes and either sort of get the sense of what the amount of food that is typically when you're that hungry or just pause and say, look, if I'm still hungry in 20 minutes, I can have more. But right now I'm guessing that I'm going to be full enough in a little bit. So it it really just takes a little bit of time to catch up. Now, one thing that can help with that is slowing down as you eat. Oftentimes people are eating, well, in two ways. They're eating very quickly, so hand-to-mouth, hand-to-mouth, without really pausing in between to allow their body to catch up, and also often eating mindlessly. So watching television, scrolling on the phone, driving, working, and et cetera. You know the drill, right? So since the human brain really can only focus fully on one thing at a time, something's going to go on autopilot, and most of the time it's eating. And so we'll eat until the plate is clean or the bag is empty instead of stopping when we've had enough, when we feel sated, And so that's what leads to overeating oftentimes. So would we categorize that clinically as cookie monster syndrome? Um, Yeah, that's it. Isn't isn't there a term? (laughs) There should be. We just invented a term. It's cookie monster syndrome. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love that. So when people read your book and discover your programs, how do you overcome the excuses? I'm too busy. I have kids. I don't cook. I, I I can't imagine those haven't come up. Mm, they come up all the time. First of all, I I don't like to think of them as excuses. I like to think of them as reasons, which means they're valid. That which means that there are reasons that we don't do what we say we want to do. However, I think when we're when we're really looking at how at, well, I like to think of well being. I think there's a bit of an over focus on what you eat and how much you exercise. I think it needs to be in the context of, of our overall well-being, which includes relationships and careers and other things. I think that how we eat and how we nourish ourselves can actually support our ability to be a great parent, to have energy, to, to do the things that we want to do, even for fun, that can help us be a better employee, a, a more effective manager and so forth. And so I think rather than it being something that distracts you from doing it, I think it can actually be something that supports you. And we also live in a society where everyone wants like a quick fix, a pill. And now people are taking these diabetes pills when they don't have diabetes. Right. I mean, that that's, again, it's such a, it's such a problem that people are not looking at the long game here. You know, what can I do to change this right now without really understanding why they're doing what they're doing in the first place? So I, you know, I'll be the first to admit that the work I do can take a little longer, but it ultimately leads to more sustainable changes. Right. So again, the book is Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. It's a series. Can you talk about the the various different versions of this? Yeah, so it's not a series in that you have to read all of them. It's a series in that I wrote different versions of the book depending on where you are in your journey. Specifically, I have the the regular eat what you love, love what you eat. It has a piece of heart-shaped chocolate on the front with gold foil. 
There is also a version of the book for people who have prediabetes or diabetes. There's a version for students. I teach a class at Arizona State University, and I also teach other instructors how to offer that class. And there's, you know, a version for people who struggle with binge eating disorder. So it's really more about adapting the concepts to people depending on what they're specifically struggling with. Are you finding that the, uh, the eager young minds of tomorrow, the Gen Xers you're teaching, are more aware of this? I mean, body image and social media are kind of wrecking their mental health. Uh, what's their receptivity? Yeah, it, that is a beautiful question. So they come into my class being uh, thinking that their, their motivation to be in the class is to be as healthy as they possibly can and to learn as much about what they shouldn't eat as possible. And they quickly realize that the textbook is called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. So maybe this isn't the run-of-the-mill nutrition class that they thought it was. And what they, what they quickly find is that they're being inc- incredibly negatively influenced uh, in terms of their body image by social media and other media that they're consuming. And that it actually contributes to a disordered relationship with food. And exercise, for that matter. And so through the course of the semester, they learn a completely new way to make decisions about food. I I say new. It's not really new. They were born knowing how to do it, but they forgot because of all of our cultural messages. So they're really relearning how to think about food as a way of, of bringing nourishment and fuel, but also pleasure to their lives without spending an inordinate amount of time looking things up and writing things down to figure out what they can eat. To what extent is your advice on cooking is better than going out to McDonald's? <laughs> For obvious reasons, McDonald's is cheaper than cooking sometimes. Well, I mean, so you're, this is kind of a loaded question because my husband yes. is a professional chef. So I'm a fan of cooking. <laughs> I'm right, a fan of obviously. my husband cooking. Maybe I should say that. You know, what happened for me was... I'll occasionally eat something like McDonald's if I'm out, you know, on a road trip or something, but it's not my preference. I I just actually don't prefer it anymore. And, And that's partly because of mindful eating. It teaches you to have awareness of the sensory aspects of food and how it makes you feel. And the more aware I became of what I liked better the more I gravitated toward things that actually came out of our own kitchen. So it doesn't, I'm not saying that fast food is bad. I actually don't believe any food is bad. I just think for me and for many of the people I work with, over time they start gravitating toward what makes them feel good. Reminds me of that line from Pulp Fiction, you know, bacon tastes good, pork chops taste good. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's a callback. I have not seen that movie in a long time. I I just live in the pop culture world of the 80s and 90s. I make no excuses for that. <laughs> right, so so wrapping up again, um, where can people get the book? And, uh, you know, what have you heard from, from readers? Yeah, so our website is amihungry.com, amihungry.com, the question. Uh, and on that front page, you can actually download the first chapter of the book for free. And that's a good place to start because don't waste your money if it doesn't resonate for you. But I think reading that chapter will give you a lot of information about whether you follow a restrictive eating cycle, an instinctive eating cycle, or an overeating cycle. And what people tell me, actually my favorite my favorite comment that I get from readers is, oh my gosh, it, 
felt like you were sitting on my couch watching me for years. I love that because what they're telling me is that they recognize that I recognize this. I'm not a I'm not an expert here just telling people what to do. This is a lived experience. And by now, of course, I've had 20 years, over 20 years of experience also working with people around these issues. But I think what they want is finally for somebody to actually understand what it's like to want to eat in a more balanced way, but to continually find themselves struggling with that. There truly is no better story than getting someone else to nod their head when they're listening to you or hearing what you had to say. You get it. You totally get it, Matthew, I'm quite sure. All right. Dr. Michelle May, associate professor at Arizona State University in Mindful Eating, founder and CEO of Am I Hungry and the author of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat book series. Again, it is amihungry.com and your own website, uh, michellemaymd.com. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, that, that website's really more for speaking. I do presentations on mindful eating and vibrant living and a weight-inclusive approach to health. So that's really my speaking website. All right, everyone hire Michelle. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And you know, you're right. We could do 40 episodes on this topic. So have me back again, okay? Will do. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.